Good morning. Um, you know, as I listen to the prayer request and as I, I uh, think about this morning as we're about to get started with class, one of the, the unique features of, of what Bob and I and, and others do during the week, at, at our law firm at least, is uh, we have about five clients a month on average who die. Um, uh, we Part of our, our work specializes in a kind of cancer that uh, is terminal and there's no treatment for it. And uh, at any time, we have about one to two uh, a week who die from that. And it's a really tough situation in, in our law firm because uh, you just deal with this. Day in, day out, we, we get to where we, we run the risk of getting callous and ignoring it just to you know, take care of ourselves for a while. Um, but I hear about these prayer requests, and, and we need to really um, try and keep that fresh in our hearts and minds. Second point before class. Uh, my good friend John Devine uh, uh, always sits down here with his wonderful wife, Nubia, and sometimes they have half of their 30 children, and sometimes they don't. Um, but uh, uh, John has been experiencing the Lord's blessings because John uh, uh, took an opportunity to run for public office again. John's run for public office before, was an elected judge uh, uh, multiple times here in Harris County and a wonderful judge. Uh, uh, yes, wonderful judge. And it's always a risk uh, to yourself, to your family, to your ego, to everything to run for public office. And John ran for the new congressional seat that was opened out here, did a fantastic job on a shoestring budget. And uh, it's ultimately going to be a runoff between two people. There were how many candidates running? Eight. John just missed the runoff by this much. He was the third guy. But I just want to say, I can't plug someone before an election because we're a 501c3 corporation here. But I do want to say uh, here at the church, now that the election is over, um, thank you, John, for running and for running as a good Christian man. Uh, I appreciate you. It, it is a, a, a race where uh, uh, while John did not win, uh, uh, he was not the only good Christian man running. And uh, we're honored to have uh, uh, from the runoff uh, one of the two candidates uh, who is a good Christian man who's here uh, sitting with Debbie Riddle, who's one of our state reps. And that's Ben Struson. Ben, would you stand up for just a minute? And uh, again, as a, as a church, we don't endorse candidates, but it sure is nice to have you here, and we wish you all the best. Um, when is the elect runoff? Uh, April 13th, and early voting is Monday. Early voting starts Monday, and it's April 13th. Well, we, we wish you the best and, and uh, all. Um, third housekeeping issue. We are finishing the Old Testament. Well, we finished the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament. We're finishing the Apocrypha today. We don't have Sunday school next Sunday. So we start fresh with the New Testament uh, the first Sunday after Easter. We will have a fresh load of Bibles for any who might be missing Bibles. Bring your friends, bring your guests, bring your visitors, bring your neighbors, um, co-opt people. When you stand up at church and you greet people, know that one, two, three... Three out of the four people you greet may not be going to a Sunday school class. It would be wonderful to say, hey, our class is just right outside the auditorium. Uh, uh, come to Sunday school with us today if you don't have anything planned. Um, I would love to see uh, us uh, uh, reinvigorate this as we go into the New Testament. I think we've got some things. 
uh, I, I, trust me. Our New Testament class in here is going to have some things that's going to just blow your doors open. That you just thought, wow, I've looked at the New Testament for a long time and I didn't even know that was in there. So, um, with that. Last point. If you don't have a lesson, last week's lesson is the same handout you get. Um, uh, but hold your hand up and uh, we will be passing it out. While we're doing that, let me tell you that uh, it came to our attention. The website was uh, not functioning as we had hoped. Uh, we're not sure we've got all the audio functioning, but now all of the lessons are there. You can pull them off the website and uh, the written lessons are available and it's working quite well. Uh, so I've been told. I've not checked it out. That's not bad. My announcements are now out of the way. Take a deep breath. We're going to finish the Apocrypha. So let's start. Weeks one and two, we talked about what is the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are a number of books. Uh, Apocrypha comes from the Greek word that means hidden, H-I-D-D-E-N, hidden, with the idea being that, uh, depending on how you see it, either these books were hidden uh, uh, and only the wise people figured out that they belong in the Bible, or these books were hidden because they don't belong in the Bible and we should keep them hidden. So that word uh, has a positive or a negative connotation depending upon who uh, in history you're reading used the word. But the Apocrypha generally refers to a book group of books that did not belong in the Jewish Old Testament but were what are called deuterocanonical. The Catholic Church in 1546 decided that these books do belong within the context of what the Catholic canon of Scripture should be. That was followed not only by the Roman Catholic Church, but the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, you'll find the Church of England, the Episcopal Church, will put it in, though not for doctrinal purposes, just for uh, edification and things like that. Um, why do some people put it in and others not? That was extensively in lesson number one of the Apocrypha. I won't go back through it, but get that handout off the web or get it from Philip or someone and you can look at it. Um, what are the basics within the Apocrypha? We dealt with about 70% of it last week. We'll close with the final 30% this week. First, I want to deal with our additions to the book of Daniel. You'll recall in our class we covered Daniel. I think we took two weeks to do it. We did not add in some additional parts of the book of Daniel that if you had a, a Catholic Bible... Did anybody bring a Catholic Bible? Nobody? Oh, uh, no, I brought mine. Um, uh, uh, very good, Regina. Anybody other than Regina bring a Catholic Bible? Okay, you lousy Protestants, look. Leone, what's your excuse? I couldn't find it. Okay, there's a good one. Just it's it's hidden. It's apocryphal. Uh, yeah. Uh, Kelly elbowed him when he said he couldn't find it. I knew that wasn't right. Um, if you look at your book of Daniel in your Catholic Bible, it's going to be longer than in your Protestant Bible because there are some additional parts. And in the Catholic Bible that I've brought, um, uh, we can look at briefly. You will see there is a footnote. You see the asterisk there? Let me zoom in. By Daniel. You've got an asterisk by Daniel. You don't have an asterisk by Ezekiel. You don't have one by Hosea or Joel. But Daniel's got one. And if you look at the bottom, it says, 
for the asterisk, okay, this is getting hard. Some editions of the Bible have not admitted these deuterocanonical books or parts of books, which are here in Daniel, the passages 3, 24 through 90, and chapters 13 and 14. So um, that's the, the Catholic Bible letting you know that these are deuterocanonical and not necessarily in it. The first section that's been added to the book of Daniel is the prayer of Azariah and song of the three young men. Now, does anybody remember Azariah? Perhaps you know him by his Babylonian name. Abednego. Okay? Now, if you know now that Abednego tells a prayer, who do you think the three young men are? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's right. Um, those, that is an addition to the book of Daniel where Azariah prays to God in the lion, or I mean in the fiery furnace and, uh, 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 the prayer is answered and we see God sending in the breath of fresh air for them and keeping them alive. And then the three young men sing a song of praise. So that's one addition to the book of Daniel in the Apocrypha. A second is Susanna. Now, Susanna is a story about a woman married to a fellow named Joachim. And Joachim's a very rich guy. And he's got a beautiful house and he's got gorgeous gardens. And in the Middle Eastern style, the gardens are totally enclosed. There's a door you open and you go into the garden. There were um, the, the Jewish people during this uh, captivity time held court... Uh, there uh, uh, in this garden because it was a beautiful, lush place. And obviously the Babylonians were not uh, giving a court system to the Jews to have court. So the Jews would enforce the Jewish law through the Jewish courts, which would meet within this rich fellow's garden. Now, there was a time where these two judges were not like John Divine. They were, uh, 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 well, I started to say they were Christian. They weren't Christian. They were <laughs> Jesus hadn't come yet. Um, they didn't have any Christians. They, they, they were religious people. They were Jews who were elders in the Jewish uh, population that were deemed to be the judges for the year. And these two fellows were judge. And at the end of the, the morning when the court was over and the litigants had come forward and put their arguments and hopefully the, the plaintiff won and, and no... <laughs> um, the litigants would come forward. That's, sorry. The litigants would come forward. The litigation would take place. The judges would make their decisions. And then the people would disperse. In the afternoon, Susanna, the wife, who was beautiful, would take a walk with her servant girls through the garden. These two men, um, uh, the scripture writes, did not were not diligent in keeping their vows to the Lord with their eyes. Men should take a vow to the Lord with their eyes. These guys were not diligent in that, and their eyes started wandering to Susanna as Susanna wandered through the garden. And as the eye wandered, the heart soon followed. And the men started lusting after her. Now, the men didn't talk about it together. But both of them kind of figured out that they were wanted an opportunity to maybe have a chance encounter with Susanna. So there was an afternoon when Susanna was going to go walking 
And both of the men said, well, we're done judging for the day. I guess it's time to go home. See ya. Yeah, see ya. And they both left to go home in opposite directions. As soon as they thought they were out of sight from the other one, they both doubled back to sneak back in the garden door to get uh, a chanced encounter with Susanna. And of course, they bump into each other and have to explain what they're doing. And then they realize they're both there doing the same thing because they've harbored the same sin in their heart and given uh, uh, opportunity to it. Uh, so they sneak in together and they start spying on Susanna. Susanna um, uh, uh, says uh, to her two maidservants who are with her, you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and take a bath. Would you run, get the stuff for the bath? And I'll um, uh, strip down here in the pond and, or, or the little garden fountain and take a bath. So the two maidservants leave and close the garden door. And the two dirty old men go up to Susanna and say, well, that's what they were. The two dirty old men go up to Susanna and they say, okay, you got a choice here. We've been watching you. We want to have our way with you. You can either consent and we'll have our way with you. Or you can say, no, in which event we're going to tell all of the community that we both caught you in an adulterous relationship with some young man who overpowered us and ran off and slammed the garden door. And you are convicted under the law, under the testimony of two witnesses. And so here are two witnesses and you will be stoned and killed. Susanna's reaction is one of... She just says it. She says, well, realistically, I die either way. I either die inside or I die outside. And if I'm going to die either way, then I'm going down with my integrity. And she starts yelling for help. Well, as soon as she starts yelling for help, the two dirty old men start yelling for help too. And the help comes running in. And before she can say anything, the two dirty old men say, oh, we just caught her. She's, you know, involved with this young fella. We couldn't tell who he was. He overpowered us. And he ran out and slammed the garden gate. And the whole thing was obviously a setup because we saw her tell her servants to leave and to shut the gate behind him. And she started taking off her clothes. So she knew this whole thing was going down. And he was hiding in here. And as soon as the servants left, he came out from behind a bush. And I guess she just didn't know we were here cleaning up from court. And uh, the people are just appalled. Susanna's husband, the family, and they all say, you know, she's the one we never would have suspected. She's just, she, and so court, court, let's get her to court. Well, she comes to court. She's all covered up as women would be at that age, at place in the, the world at that time. And the judges say, no, no, no. Take your coverings off. Show everybody what you look like. And everybody, you know, realized she's a strikingly beautiful woman. And uh, 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 then each of them give their testimony. The people said, two witnesses. She's convicted. Let's take her out to stone her. And so they start to take Susanna out to stone her. The, uh, 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 Susanna looks up to heaven and cries out, God, how can this happen to me? This is not fair and this is not just. And please, God, deliver me. God hears the prayer and sends Daniel in. And Daniel bumps into the people taking her out to stone her. I guess at least they weren't going to stone her in her own garden. 
and uh, uh, said, why are you taking her out to stone her? This is a tragedy. This is a mishap. Uh, you haven't even heard her side of the story. These two guys are lecherous old men who have borne false testimony, and they ought to be stoned. And the dirty old men said, well, if you think so, then come on in and be the lawyer, and we'll have court all over again. So they took the girl back, and Daniel says, okay, I'm going to be the lawyer, but uh, we're going to invoke the rule. Now, we have that in our court system here. We have the rule in Texas, which means... If I if I invoke the rule, Judge Devine would send out all of the witnesses, and no witness is allowed to hear what any other witness testifies to. It's a good rule. That's where it comes from. He invokes the rule. He says, "You send one dirty old man out, and I'm going to cross-examine the first one. And you get him out of the way, and you bring the second dirty old man. I'll cross-examine him, and I'm going to prove this woman's innocent." First old man, dirty old man comes in and he tells his story. And uh, Daniel says, yeah, <clears throat> under which tree were they laying? Uh, it was a mastic tree. I can tell you that it was a mastic tree. I bet you they had a bunch of mastic trees in the garden. <laughs> Daniel says, yeah, well, God's going to bring it down on your head. You watch. Go to the side. Next guy. Dirty old man number two, under which tree? He says, it was an oak tree. It was an oak tree. And the people realized that the two dirty old men were lecherous and had been lying. And the two dirty old men get stoned. And Daniel's fame grows. Story's in the Apocrypha, not in the original book of Daniel. Um, Third edition of the book of Daniel, that's found in Daniel chapter 13, if you've got your Catholic Bible. Daniel chapter 14 in the Catholic Bible, also not in the Jewish Bible, nor the Protestant Bible, concerns uh, two more stories of Daniel, uh, one of Bel and one of the dragon. Bel is uh, a statue, that uh, uh, an idol that the king worships. And the king says to Daniel, how come you don't worship Bel? And Daniel says, because Bel is clay with bronze around the outside, and I worship a living God. The king says, no, you don't understand. Bel's alive, because every night, I and a number of others, we put food out in Bel's temple. And the next morning, we show up, and it's gone. And Daniel laughs at the king. That's what it says. It says, Daniel laughs at the king, and Daniel says... You've been fooled, buddy. You really think that clay and bronze idol statue is eating your food? And the king says, I'm going to prove it. He gets all the priests together of Bell, and he says, here's the deal, priests. Either y'all are lying to me about the statue eating the food, or Daniel's lying to me. Whoever's lying to me is going to get killed. So here's, you know, we, we need the truth. And the priest said, hey, Daniel's lying. Here's how we're going to prove it. King, you and Daniel, you bring in your food, you lay it down. Put it up, put it, spread it out, make your spread. Then you leave and you lock the door. And don't just lock it, you seal it. Where no one else can get in there unless they got your seal. You come back the next morning, you see which one of us is telling the truth. King says, this is a good idea. King lays out all the food with Daniel. Daniel says, hang on, King, I got one other thing I want to do. And get some ashes spread all around on the floor that nobody knows about except him and the king and the 
fella he had helping him spread the ashes. They leave, you know, dust the ashes, make them clean, and lock the door. Next morning, the priests, oh, by the way, in the middle of the night, the priests and their wives and their kids all come in through the secret entrance under the table. They eat up all the food. That's critical detail. If I'd left that out, this story wouldn't have made sense. Um, they leave via the secret entrance. Next morning, the priests come, find the king, Daniel, and say, Hey, let's go check out the seal. The king says, Okay, let's... Well, don't, don't open it yet, king. Look, we don't want any questions. Is there any question but that that seal is intact? The king says, Nope, no question. It's intact. Okay, let's break the seal. Let's go in. They break the seal. They go in. All the food's gone. <gasps> king looks at Daniel and says, Sorry, you die. And Daniel said, Time out. Look down. King looks down. What do you see, king? King says, Bunch of feet prints of a bunch of men, a bunch of women, a bunch of kids. Says, Hmm. And so the king confronted the priest again. The priest said, Yeah, we had a secret entrance. And the priests all died. That's Bell. Now, the dragon was evidently some other kind of creature that uh, also was actually alive. Uh, we don't know what the word dragon is translating. Um, I have a lady who used to live down the street from me, and that's the word we used for her. It, <laughs> hers for me was worse, okay? Um, the, uh, uh, so I don't know what the dragon... Y'all didn't have a dragon lady live down the street from you growing up? Okay, anyway... Um, there's a dragon, and the king says, look, the dragon obviously eats. There's no question he eats. Now, Daniel, why aren't you worshiping the dragon? Daniel said, well, uh, you know, the, the dragon may eat, but I can kill the dragon. Anything I can kill, I don't plan on worshiping. king says, how are you going to kill the dragon? So Daniel makes up this concoction of uh, pitch and hair, and I know, it sounds like some big fur ball or something to me, but... He puts all this stuff together. It's probably got a little, you know, kerosene and dynamite and some firecrackers and all in it. And then puts it all together, feeds it to this dragon, and the dragon explodes. Um, so Daniel says, you want me to, to, like, worship an exploding god? And uh, uh, at this, some of the people get a little upset and said, you know, the king's just becoming a Jew. And so they throw Daniel in the lion's den again. And this time he's in there for seven days. And the lions are typically being fed one to two people a day. And they don't feed the lions anything for these seven days. Uh, uh, a prophet comes from Jerusalem uh, to feed Daniel. Uh, so Daniel gets food, but the lions don't. And after seven days, Daniel's still fine. The king comes and says, Daniel, are you okay? He says, yes, I'm okay. King says, okay, well, you're, you're, you win. Pulls Daniel out and throws the other people in there to feed the lions. So now you have the additions to the book of Daniel. Um, Prayer of Manasseh is another addition to your Apocrypha uh, that is not in uh, what I consider inerrant scripture. Uh, none of this is to me scripture. Uh, it does not meet the uh, uh, standards of inerrancy that I apply to scripture. Um, but these are very good, important stories that illustrate not only the ideas of uh, holiness to these people, but give us some feel of what's going on during the uh, time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, the prayer of Manasseh. 
Uh, Manasseh was the king of Israel, I mean of uh, Judah, who was wicked, that was taken off into captivity, and toward the end of his life found his faith. And we read about him in 2 Chronicles. And in 2 Chronicles it says the prayer that Manasseh offered to the Lord can be read about in a couple of different sources. Um, I don't know if that's where this may have come from or not, but the prayer of Manasseh is, in fact, a beautiful, moving prayer by someone who is seeking God's forgiveness and is one that I've prayed before that uh, uh, is, is a wonderful prayer. Uh, I pulled out just a couple of points, three points about it. The first is the prayer starts out with a confession. And I love the language that, that is used there. Manasseh says, The sins I have committed are more in number than the sands of the sea. I am unworthy to look up. I am weighed down and I have no relief. I love that because of the way this person understood their sin to be one of, first of all, beyond measure. I can't even go back and start counting them. They're too numerous. But I can tell you that I'm not worthy to look up to God, much less ask for forgiveness. And I can tell you that I feel weighed down. And I don't have any relief. Sin can be oppressive. I think one reason we ignore sin is because we don't like the way it weighs us down and makes us feel. And this person is expressing that to God. And then the supplication is beautiful. And now I bend the knee of my heart. Now we often talk about getting on your knees before God. I bend the knee of my heart. I like that in this prayer. I earnestly beseech you, forgive me, O Lord, forgive me. And then the the prayer talks about how God is a forgiving God and powerful in a forgiving God. Ends with a doxology praising God as this person who at first couldn't even look up because of their sin has the forgiveness and is able to say, all the host of heaven sings your praise. Yours is the glory forever. Amen. It's a beautiful prayer um, uh, found in the Apocrypha. Next, I want to close uh, 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 over the next 15 minutes with this. First and second Maccabees. Um, First and second Maccabees are books of history. And while not uh, uh, inerrant scripture, uh, most every scholar who's looked at them agree that while there are mistakes here and there, the the books do convey a very accurate picture of historical events that transpired between the Old Testament and the New Testament within a narrow time range. Really, these transpired between about 175 B.C. till about 140 B.C. or 135, something in that range. This was probably written, 1 Maccabees was probably written around 120... 130, 120, 100, maybe even as late as 70, but definitely written by 70 B.C., within a generation of when the the story ends. And so we see here some history that is very important for us as we get ready to get into the New Testament because it helps lay the groundwork of what had been happening to the Jews at the time Jesus came. The the first Maccabees starts out with uh, Alexander the Great. And um, let's see if I can find First Maccabees. 
First Maccabees, if we read the first verse, it says, Alexander of Macedon, son of Philip, had come from the land of Kittim and defeated Darius, king of the Persians and Medes, who he succeeded at first uh, as ruler at first of Hellas, which is Greek, Greece. Um, Macedon is where Alexander the Great came from. Macedonia is, is what we would consider now northern Greece. And Philip was his father. As a very young man, Alexander became general and conquered all of, of Greece, uh, moved over into Turkey, basically conquered the whole known world, uh, had marvelous innovations as a general. Um, uh, and uh, just in the first 12 years or so of his life, just wiped out everybody and brought the Greek culture out of Greece and started spreading it throughout. Formed a town in uh, uh, Egypt named Alexandria, uh, which is still there today, which became a center point of learning. And he was going to take Greek culture and spread it all over the world. Alexander the Great was convinced that the Greek mentality, the Greek approach to government, the Greek approach to art and culture, the Greek religion was such a, a, a far advanced state of affairs that the entire world could be governed by that one ideology and approach. And so Alexander goes out and conquers the world. Well, Alexander dies a young fella, um, uh, has a kid who's uh, not altogether there. And uh, uh, when Alexander dies over the next 10 or 15 years, his generals fight about how to administer his territory. Ultimately, what they do is they divide it into four or five parts. One part is ruled out of Egypt by a general named Ptolemy, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. The, the, the Iran, Iraq area is being ruled by uh, 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 the Seleucids, and it's the Seleucid dynasty. Seleucus was their name. Of course, right in the middle between the Iran, Iraq, and Egypt is... Israel. And so there's a, a big fuss between those two dynasties, the Seleucid dynasty, Iran-Iraq, and the Egyptian Ptolemy dynasty over who's going to have Israel and where Israel's going to fit. Uh, the, the fuss is big. So there's a little fussing going back and on. Ptolemy of Egypt gets Israel at first and his son and successor, Ptolemy II, just falls in love with the Jewish people. That's when Ptolemy II brings in the people from Jerusalem and says, would you start translating all of the Hebrew writings into Greek so that we've got them? And the Septuagint comes from that. Meanwhile, the Jews are happy at that point in time, but with Ptolemy III, they're not so happy anymore. So the Jews start playing a dance. Do we want to be with Egypt or do we want to sell out and go be with the Seleucid Empire up here, the Iran-Iraq area? And they start doing the dance back and forth and the people start dividing. And uh, about this time, there's a new, well, uh, a new, let me tell you about the old. The Seleucids start getting ruled by these guys who are fond of the name Antiochus. There's Antiochus I, Antiochus II, Antiochus III. Along comes Antiochus IV, who's a ruler, and he's a bad guy. He's a wicked man. Antiochus IV rules from 175 to 164 B.C. And... Um, um, uh, his, his name that, that's appended to Antiochus is Epiphanes. Okay? 
Antiochus Epiphanes is, is uh, one of two things. He's either very illustrious, and in the Greek, epiphane means to shine upon, or it means illustrious, or something showing forth signs. But if you take the uh, PH out, and instead of epiphane, you put in an M, it means madman. And so some of his current uh, people uh, would make a play on his name and call him Antiochus the Madman instead of Antiochus the Bright Shining Star. And um, uh, what Antiochus decided was that he was going, Antiochus was going to take the Hellenization a step further. What do I mean by Hellenization? Forcing Greek culture on the people. And so Antiochus goes to the Jews in Jerusalem and says, hey, y'all been playing footsies with us. Good news. You're with us now. And with us means we are going to force Greek culture down your throat. And there were a lot of Jews that were in favor of that. That opened the door for Antiochus. So Antiochus comes in and says, here are the new rules. Judaism, as you know it, is illegal. You don't worship that God. The temple... Antiochus takes over and he builds within it a temple to Zeus, the big honcho Greek god, okay? Because they got bunches of them, so you got to distinguish them. This is the big guy, Zeus. Takes the Holy of Holies down and erects there a sacrificial altar to Zeus. Proceeds to tell the people... No more on the Judaism takes all of the Jewish scrolls, the Bibles, the really old texts that I'd give my eye teeth to read, and burns them. Any copy of Jewish scripture found is burned. If a mother gives birth to a child and it's a boy and the boy is circumcised, as the law says, the mother and the child are killed and the baby is strung up and hung around the mother's neck, and she's put on public display. This is the man that Daniel had prophesied about as a very, as, as a very wicked man who had set up the abomination of desolation in the temple. And he did. And he was a madman. And at this time, there is a man named Matthias. And Matthias has five boys. Matthias is a priest. Lives in a town, uh, not Midian, but Median. At Modin, excuse me. Modin, M-O-D-I-N is the way it's also spelled. And um, the king, Antiochus Epiphanes, sends a commissioner out and says, Go there. And let's get everybody, let's take what we're doing in Jerusalem, let's do it everywhere. So into Modin, this commissioner comes, finds out that Matthias uh, uh, is, and it's also spelled Mattathias, depending on which translations you're reading, but finds out that, that he's like the esteemed elder priest in the, that town for the Jews. And so the king's commissioner comes to him and he makes him an enticing proposal. He says, you're a man in power. Tell you what. If you will uh, conform to what I'd like you to conform to, I will see that you are rich beyond measure. All you need to do is take some of this pig and eat it, sacrifice to Zeus, eat some food that's already been sacrificed to Zeus. You just be willing to play a little long game with us. You don't really have to believe it. Just give the appearance. 
so everybody will follow and you'll be rich beyond measure. That should not say confirm, that should say conform. Sorry. This is what Matthias says. Matthias says, raising his voice, lest people not be able to hear. Matthias retorted, even if every nation living in the king's dominion obeys him, each forsaking its ancestral religion to conform to his decrees, I, my sons, and my brothers will still follow the covenant of our ancestors. Heaven preserve us from forsaking the law and its observances. As for the king's orders, we will not follow them. We will not swerve from our own religion either to the right or to the left. Um, when Mattathias says this, one of the other people in the town says, you're a crazy guy, and proceeds to go over and says, I'm going to sacrifice to Zeus. Mattathias is overcome with zeal and goes over and kills the guy dead and says, no, you're not, over my dead body. And then Mattathias sees that the king's uh, commissioner is killed also. Mattathias and his sons and their families, they all go out and start hiding in the caves. A number of other Jews who are tired of, of, of please understand, these are wicked people they're dealing with. These are the people who are killing and the babies and hanging them around everybody's neck, okay? Uh, this is not... Uh, 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 th this, this is evil, wicked, satanic action that they're fighting here. Um, so uh, Antiochus has his generals and his people get together an army. They go out. They find the, some of the Jews who've gone off in the desert to be by themselves to try and honor their laws and uh, says, uh, hey, um, it's the Sabbath... Why don't y'all come over here to us and surrender? And the Jews say, no, we can't even walk that far on the Sabbath. You know, we are going to honor our law. He says, oh, gee, then I guess you're not in the mood to fight. He sends his army down. Jews don't even pick up a weapon because it's the Sabbath. And he massacres all of them. Mattathias is in the caves with his sons. He says, guys, I got news for you. It's okay before the Lord to fight on the Sabbath and defend yourself. That kind of massacre will not happen again. So Mattathias and his boys learn from that, and they have the new strategy. They're going to fight on the Sabbath, and Mattathias does so and does so successfully for the next couple of years until he dies. When he dies, his son Judas Maccabees takes over. He has five boys. Judas becomes the general. Judas is a brilliant general, and he's a man who's devoted to the Lord. And for from seven years, from 166 to 160, Judas just fights all these guys. And these guys are bringing in, Antiochus is sending down armies with generals that, that are three and four and five times the size. And, and Antiochus, I mean, and Judas Maccabees is whipping them. One of the reasons why is because, well, the reason why is God's on his side. But another reason why is because these Jews are fighting for their lives. And the armies of Antiochus are just a bunch of paid, um, what do you call them when you buy? Mercenaries. A bunch of paid mercenaries. You know, you take someone who's a paid mercenary getting, you know, 50 bucks today to go out there and fight, and you come up against a madman who's fighting for his very life and existence, pretty soon the paid mercenary says, man, this guy's got his heart in it. I'm, I'm going back. I'll... Call me again on the next tour. I'm real into like the peacekeeping role. Okay? Um, 
We don't know what Maccabees comes from. Uh, uh, there is a Hebrew word, Maccaba, which has the MCB, which means hammer. Some people think that's it. But if you go what the old Hebrew sages would tell you, if you go back to Exodus 15.11, it says, Who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Uh, that's Mikamaba Ba'alas Yahweh. You take first of those letters, and that is uh, what tradition tells us Maccabees got his name from. Uh, because he's going to stand up for Yahweh and there is no one else like him. He beats everybody who's coming. Um, finally takes back over the temple in Jerusalem. And when he takes back over the temple in Jerusalem, they get rid of all of the unholiness. They have the priests rededicate the temple. When the priests rededicate the temple with all of the Zeus stuff yanked out, they want to offer a holy sacrifice. So they're looking for a holy sacrifice to redo it. The Antiochus Epiphanes has taken away all of the menorah, the candlestick that's supposed to be there. They're supposed to have the candles lit when they do the sacrifices. And so they've got an eight-day celebration as they try and reconsecrate the, the temple to the Lord. And during this eight days, they need holy oil. You can't just burn anything. They manage to find one vial of holy oil that's left. That vial should last for one day. And, but it's going to be seven or eight days before they can even go through the process of getting uh, kosher oil, purified oil, because they don't want to offer an impurified oil to the Lord. But they go ahead and they light it for that one day. And the candle, that oil, stays lit for eight full days, which is the miracle of Hanukkah. It was what the people understood to say God is still blessing us and God's protection is still here in the midst of these times. And that is the menorah and the candles that get lit on Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a time of thanksgiving and celebrating God preserving His people in the midst of this. And that's where it comes from. If you've read your Old Testament over and When I was a kid, I used to read my Old Testament over and over looking for Hanukkah. Because I was thinking, I can like double up on the gifts. Mom and Dad have told me this book is true and they're going to follow everything it says. If I can get Hanukkah out of this book, then sky's the limit. Okay? Never could find it. We needed the Catholic Bible. Uh, uh, and actually, the Catholic Bible itself doesn't lay it out as Hanukkah. You've got to then go to the Talmud and see how... The Jewish fathers were interpreting the events that happened, but the events are there. Antiochus Epiphanes dies while Judas Maccabees is going, but it's not over. He's got a boy, Eupater. <laughs> Why is she here? I don't know. You paid her. Um, Antiochus V. Um, he's, got to, he's not too old, so Lysias is the general for Antiochus IV, and Lysias is still running stuff. Demetrius comes back. He's the Seleucid of the old blood. And they have a big knockdown drag out. And Demetrius kills Antiochus V. He kills Lysias. And then just continues to try and exterminate the Jews. And this is what you read about in 1 Maccabees. And from 162 to 150, uh, Judas uh, Maccabeus, uh, Maccabeus thwarts the efforts until Judas dies. Then his brothers take over. They thwart the effort. Um, um, it's interesting because Judas sends a letter to Rome and says, Hey, uh, can we be friends? And uh, if you up in Rome get attacked by anybody, uh, we Jews will come up there and defend you. And if we get attacked down here, would you all come defend us? And oh, by the way, it's already happening. <laughs> and the Romans send back a real nice letter. It says, Yeah, we'd love to be buddies and we'll get down there when we can. Um, never come. 
until they come to conquer in like 68 B.C. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, uh, another interesting thing is also a letter is written by uh, uh, Judas, one of Judas's brothers, Jonathan, when he becomes uh, the high priest uh, after Judas dies and continues the fight. And it's written, not only he writes and reconfirms with the Romans, but he writes the Spartans and says, man, you guys are like our brothers in Greece. Hey, man, I love the way you Spartans fight. And we'll come up there if you need us. And you come down here if we need you. And uh, uh, it's in- interesting. Judas does die. His brother Jonathan becomes leader and high priest. Continues to deal with Alexander Epiphanes, who is like um, actually this uh, nothing guy. He's like some low-born guy who everybody says, hey, let's say he's a long-lost son of Antiochus Epiphanes and he'll be our puppet and we'll make him. So they make Alexander Epiphanes. That's what they call him. And he says, oh, this is me. I'm the long-lost son. I'm here to claim my kingdom. First thing he does is he figures he needs a good partner. So he goes down to Egypt for Ptolemy the 39th, you know, whichever number they're on. And Ptolemy the 39th says, "Uh, hey, if you're really the king, I'll give you my daughter and you can marry her. Her name's Cleopatra. Now you're thinking, oh, that's what happened with Cleopatra. No, they had like 50,000 Cleopatras, okay? <laughs> he says, this is my daughter, Cleopatra. This is my wife, Cleopatra. And have you met my mom, Cleopatra? Okay? It's almost like Larry, Daryl, and Daryl. Except it's, uh, this is my sister, Cleopatra, and my other sister, Cleopatra. And, and so Alexander marries Cleopatra. Then uh, uh, the dad does a little more work, figures he's going to take over uh, and, uh, from Alexander. Had really done the whole thing as a ruse to conquer uh, Israel and everything else. And takes Cleo away from Alexander and gives him to Demetrius and says, now I'm going to work with you and yada, yada. And it goes on and on. Eventually Jonathan dies and the last son of Mattathias, Simon, takes over and uh, finishes liberating Israel, 142 to 134 in that time range, B.C. Israel stays liberated, in essence. At least they're allowed to worship and function uh, uh, and self-govern. They have to pay taxes and tithes to, to whichever power that be. But by and large, they're allowed to exist on their own until we get to the Romans conquering in 68, but it was during this time period, 68 B.C., during this time period that so many of the Jews wanted to turn Greek and have the Hellenistic influence that the other Jews pulled so strongly and said, no, we must be zealous for the laws and totally separate ourselves out from anything remotely close. And that's where the Pharisees come in and the Sadducees come in. And those parties that we'll read about in the New Testament, but you never read about in the Old Testament, they make their appearance during this time period, and they're the ones who at first are the holy ones of Israel because they're following the law to the nth degree. But the distance between being holy and right before God following the law to the nth degree and being a self-righteous hypocrite who God holds his nose at, is razor thin. The difference is in your heart. When your heart is right before the Lord, and that's why we're following what he says, then then those are the people that we need to model our lives after, we need to honor and esteem, and that's what we need to strive to be.
the people who are holy and righteous and holier than thou and judgmental of everyone else who don't have their lives put together quite so well are the ones we need to be very scared of because those are the zealots that wind up putting the Lord to death. Okay? And we'll see those distinctions in the people very clearly. You go back in history and it starts out pretty good. But by the time we get to the New Testament and we see how they deal with Jesus, it'll be very interesting. So we need to understand that. Points for home. We are ready to look at the New Testament. And I'm excited about it. I've been working on the New Testament stuff uh, for 43 years and really hard the last two months. And uh, uh, I'm really excited about it. I hope you will be here. Uh, number two, we don't get Hanukkah. Okay? Unless you're Jewish. Okay? You get Jewish, you can still celebrate Hanukkah. The rest of us, we're out of luck. Stick with Christmas. Um, number three. Inspired or not, those events that we read about in, in Maccabees were prophesied by God through Daniel, through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, through countless minor prophets, and it came true. God, though, has done all of that to provide for us and to provide for them. The way was being made for Jesus. It was not the right time for Jesus to come until the moment He was born. And it was not the right time for Jesus to die until the moment He died. But all of that worked in God's provision. And the last thing I want to tell you is there have been faithful believers as long as the humans have been walking this planet. And we can draw encouragement from them. And I urge you to do it. I urge you to find faithful believers and draw encouragement from them. They never take the place of Jesus. But it, there's something that happens in our makeup where we can see what's going on and there is a bit of courage. There's, 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 there's strength that dwells up within us as we see people um, who, who, who have, have been through this walk and done so faithfully. And so find those kind of people and listen to their stories. If you've got godly family members, sit down and ask them, what has God done in your life? And listen to the stories. When you go on trips with people and you've got godly people, what has God done in your life? And listen to the stories and learn to tell your own. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for this class. These people bring me so much joy um, uh, to sit and come together and I pray that you will give me good wisdom and, and good words and good skills to be able to convey to all of us, my heart and everyone else's, um, a, a measure of understanding of who you are. That we may know you on an intimate level and grow in that knowledge of you and your son that you've sent. I pray you'll get every heart here that needs to be here and that we will just refresh anew our approach to the New Testament, Lord, and to see in these scriptures how you have opened up for us the focal point of the entire human history when you came to earth and made a way for us to go with you home. It is through our Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.